0: Season two of Have You Got Five Minutes is brought to you in partnership with Nextdoor, the neighbourhood app that's used by one in seven households in the UK. This past 18 months, we've all needed to connect a little closer with the communities around us and Nextdoor are working to create a kinder place for people to have a neighbourhood that they can rely on. Tap into your neighbourhood at nextdoor.co.uk or download the app from your app store.
1: Leadership can be quite lonely sometimes and I think, you know, one of the things that I've learned is that though you perhaps don't take a conscious decision to get there you need to keep to push yourself and make sure that you're continuing to develop as a leader because you that thing is a constant learning experience you're never an expert at it
0: hello i'm rebecca roberts
2: Hi, I'm Harriet Small. Welcome to Have You Got 5 Minutes? The PR, Comms, and Marketing Podcast. Answering the things you'd normally have asked about at an event or while making a brew in the office. Hi everyone, it's Harriet here with Rebecca. Hello. Hello, so this is our finale complete finale episode for season two of the podcast this episode we have my friend sam hodges and Jay's mcleod on the episode i hope you enjoy it we will be back for season three in the new year and we're looking forward to it becky gonna wish our listeners happy christmas <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah well i'm always up for christmas but yeah have a nice christmas we're gonna bring you some other little bits to keep you interested um, before season
2: three. But yeah, thanks to everyone who supported us this season. And thanks to our partners next door and our advertisers, Banana Tag, and to our producer Dave. Thank you so much.
0: On this episode of the pod, we are joined by not one but two guests who are well known for their high-profile roles in television and tech. Sam Hodges started at the BBC and worked on a little show called Strictly Come Dancing. He later did since at ITV, Channel 4, and then back to the BBC, where he was head of communications. He then moved into tech, taking on the chief comms role at Twitter, then director of content comms at Netflix, and became a partner at Freud's. He's also a director at Aqua. We're also joined by James McLeod, who recently stepped down as communications director at Channel 4, where he remains as an advisor on the government's new consultation relating to the broadcaster's future ownership and its review of public service broadcasting. James started his career at the BBC as a publicist and then later joined ITV, leaving
2: there with Head of Press
0: Broadcasting.
2: Thanks for joining us today, guys.
3: Pleasure. No problem. Thanks for having us.
2: A trivial question, but I've always wondered how TV shows are picked to go on Gogglebox and does everyone in PR fight for a slot on the show?
1: (laughs) Well, there's a a fantastic production team. All of our shows at Channel 4 are produced by uh, independent producers and in the case of Gogglebox, it's uh, Studio Lambert. I guess I don't want to spoil the magic of television too much by revealing all of what goes on, but I think ultimately it's down to the great production team there at Studio Lambert. They make the decisions about what gets on air but it is definitely closely fought over. What I would say is that there are a lot of shows um, that don't always get a warm reception and we've had plenty of Channel 4 shows through the years which have been maybe mauled by the uh, panels on the goggle boxes So, and, and that's caused some fallout with on-air talent and all sorts. So it's definitely coveted to appear if you get the right reception but they are scrupulously and ruthlessly independent as panellists and reviewers so I, I would say it doesn't always work out as everybody would want
2: you've been together from the beginning of your pr and comms careers as it were both starting out with the bbc and then working in various roles and then coming together at other places what have you learned from each other over the years
3: so what have i learned from james quite a lot most of it good Obviously. But I, I suppose I have a theory, a bit of a theory about PR that it can be, at its worst, the most vacuous of careers. That if you don't like what you're doing and you're not confident in who you are, it's not a good space. So if I've learned anything from James, it's that, you know, when he and I started, I was a 27 year old Brummy, he was a Geordie, both into the BBC, but have always stood by kind of who we are and what we're passionate about. We're not those PRs that run around with clipboards trying to look super efficient. You know, we've both worked hard, both done well. But I think it's, it's the truth that it's a nice validation that good things happen to those who work hard. And I've also learned that it, I'm a lightweight drinker, but James is probably even worse.
1: <laughs> yeah, drinking is important Ed, in television. But no, I, I'd agree with that. I think you've got to have fun. For, we always have fun. Luckily, it's unfortunately, it's it's rarely life and death in entertainment, TV, PR. It can be pressured sometimes, but we always try and have a laugh along the way. And we've been pitted against each other sometimes over the years. Um, but even then, it's important to recognize that, you know, we're not in a war. We're just acting on behalf of our, in our organizations. And I think Sam's right, you know, we, we were just two guys who grew up in the Northeast and, and Brum respectively. And I think, you know, we're both fairly straightforward people and in an industry where sometimes has been in the past dominated by different backgrounds from, you know, maybe privileged backgrounds. I think, you know, it is it we've probably both got a reasonably straightforward approach to what we've done and I, and I think we both get on as a result of that as well.
0: I'm glad you get on because this would have been a really awkward podcast if you didn't.
3: Um. It would be really awkward, wouldn't it? If <laughs> didn't. Certainly starting with that
0: question. Yeah. <laughs> so we brought you back together over the years. And the question for both of you: How have you known when it's the right time to take that sort of leap into leadership?
3: I think the key for me wanting to get into leadership was that program publicity can become quite cyclical. You can do two, three, four series of the same program with the same cast and. I could see each time more opportunities where the consumer angle could be telling the corporate story, for example. So wanting to get involved at a more senior level was one key thing. Also being surrounded by some really good people, people like James and I both worked at ITV with Zy Bennett, who was one of the youngest channel controllers. He was outspoken, knew exactly what he wanted, and was transformative within the sort of digital channel landscape. And working with people like him really encouraged me to realise – you know if you've got a perspective that can take you towards a leadership role you just need to be quite confident in it
1: yeah and I'd, i i uh, agree with that as well i think you know I, my move into leadership i can't it's hard to say what is what is leadership and what isn't but it it, it wasn't conscious it just happened over time and you know i think it was a consequence of working in, you know, Originally, I was working at ITV as heading up their sports PR, uh, and, and actually over time that became, with big acquisitions of rights and things going on, it became more corporate and I sort of moved more into a corporate role. And so it sort of just happened without me thinking about it consciously. I think what's important is I've always had a lot of, like Sam, good people who I've worked with along the way. At the BBC, I worked very closely with Louisa Fiennes, who's now director of comms at the FA at ITV with Mike Large, who's director of comms at all three media with people like Sam. I think if you've got good people who inspire you, who can, you know, who you can learn a lot of, I think, you know, that's that's. You don't really need to take a conscious decision; it just happens and you, you you can learn from others. I think the important thing is when you get into a, a management or a leadership role is making sure that you've got a support network around you and making sure that you've got either an informal network, whether that's mentors, just other people in the industry like I've got people like Sam who I can shoot ideas off and you know if if you can, I would really recommend getting support of a a coach or a mentor you know they're really really valuable for making sure that you can continue to develop because especially when you're managing large groups of people leadership can be quite lonely sometimes and I think you know one of the things I've learned is that though you perhaps don't take a conscious decision to get there you need to keep to push yourself and make sure that you're continuing to develop as a leader because you that thing is a constant learning experience you're never an expert at it.
0: Sam you went from television to technology when you moved into a head of control at Twitter what was that transition like for
3: you? As a bit of background the reason I chose that decision was because I'd worked in tv been lucky enough to work in tv for all of my career and I got to the point so I was about 40 then where I thought I'm going to work hopefully for another 20 years and My experience within linear television probably wasn't going to see me through. So I knew I needed to learn some new skills. And having been head of comms at the BBC, I probably didn't know what the next role in television was. So it just seemed like a good moment to reflect on what do I need to learn to kind of future proof myself a little bit. The obvious things were digital, global, perhaps a scrappier, younger company. And the one thing that I really knew I wanted was to try and work out who that company might be, but that I would be interested enough to be passionate and to be a good comms person for. Like I've said before, you can't do comms well for stuff you're not interested in. And Twitter kind of ticked that box. So I'd used it professionally a lot. Personally, it was something I'd used and enjoyed. So getting a job there was brilliant. And it did exactly what I wanted, which was to give me a reset. So suddenly I went into an industry where I didn't know a single person. You know, you're comforted when you move TV channels because... The journalists are the same. Suddenly, after 15 years, if I wanted to get in touch with a tech correspondent at The Telegraph, he had no idea who my name was. My phone would show up, my number, not my name. So it really made me value the importance of the contacts I'd made, but reignite that kind of passion to grow a little bit more. But yeah, I'm not going to lie. It was also pretty terrifying. And the first time I went to San Francisco HQ, which is a cavernous place, building it's a whopper stood there I had no anchor in any sense in terms of people you know no one to reflect with no one to gossip with or And everyone around me, I thought, would know tech unbelievably. So it did everything professionally and personally, I could hope. And luckily, if you get a chance to work there, Twitter's also a fantastic culture and brilliant people. So, yeah, it was was a gamble that that paid off, I think.
2: Yeah, I remember when you let me come there and have lunch. um, It was like the best day out I've ever been at. It's better than going for a PR conference. Oh, I loved
3: going to Twitter.
1: I loved going to Twitter for lunch. You get free chocolate bars.
3: Get free everything. I mean, (laughs) considering when James and I worked at the BBC, and I remember... In the old days of television centre, you had to pay for any cup of tea, and if you want, even if you took your own tea bag in, you would have to pay for the boiling water. So to suddenly go from that culture, which obviously publicly funded is probably the right thing, to somewhere like Twitter or Netflix where you have cooked breakfast, cooked lunch, you know, snacks, all those snacks that you see in the shops that sound horrific and are five pounds, you just get to chance for free. So aloe vera crisps, something like that. So yeah, it was, it was a complete mind reset, but uh, a good one.
2: So James. What do you look for when hiring from agencies? And has there been a time where you've been torn by your decision?
1: Oh, always torn. I mean, I think making a decision and turning anybody down—I hate it. It's horrible. I think it's it's always, I'm sure, tough to pitch for business, but it is pretty tough to turn people down as well. Nobody likes doing that. I think generally, though, we've tended to use agencies. We've we've got quite a comprehensive in-house team. We've got big content program PR team uh, and an experienced corporate team. And so when we when we've tended to use agencies it's because we want to have specific experience that we don't have or a specific creative execution that we've got that we want some help with. So we we generally at Channel 4 we haven't been looking for a sort of full service agency experience. It's been often really about the creative idea, about the execution And that's what's normally got the pitch over the line. The second thing that we generally look for are agencies and people that are really good to work with, that can work with the rest of our people well. I think at Channel 4, one of the great things, it's a very collaborative spirit right across the organisation. We work with independent producers. We've got big teams involved. you know, marketeers. We've got people in legal and compliance. We've got people in production companies, commissioners. And so often we're looking for agencies who we think will be really good collaborators in in that sense we haven't always got the biggest budgets but we do have some great content to work on so so often that's A draw for uh, you know for agencies and we've we've, you know we've had the pleasure of working with some great ones but yeah definitely it's 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 horrible choosing for sure but I think it it, for us it's about really it's about two things it's about great creative ideas and about how they can work with everybody in our in our organization
2: and then I guess the question for Sam is um, now that you've been on the other side so you've been in agency land what have you learned about hiring agencies for the future?
3: I think one of the things I've learned, uh, picking up on a word James used there, is collaboration, because I think the pitch process in its starkest form just isn't great. If you come in with a singular task and an agency, a good agency can always answer a singular task. They can put together a fancy deck, they can rehearse their pitch, but actually it's, it's making sure the agency you're working with understand your problem as well as just delivering a solution. Because creative ideas are super important. But if they're a creative idea that doesn't answer a business problem, I think that's when things float down the Thames. So for me, it's it's the importance of if you're an agency, being part of the industry helps. So making sure you have a kind of voice or reputation or you are keeping up your contacts outside of just being when you're pitching. So, you know, I stayed in touch with a lot of people that I'd worked with over my career. And I think that That is critical because if it's just about a pitch and a deck, I'm not sure anyone learns enough to be a really robust partner.
2: So one of the things that, I think about a lot especially transitioning so I've had this conversation a lot with a lot of people is how do senior PR pros think about someone coming from one sector to another so do you hire based on knowledge of the sector or do you hire based on skills within PR and comms so if someone's moving so for example I work in local I've worked in local government and probably politics for a long time would you then say no I'd rather hire somebody who's worked in TV or tech yeah, so that, I was just wanting to get your views on that one.
1: Yeah, I, I think definitely welcome people from outside the sector. It's, I think some of some of my best hires have been people that have never worked in television before. I've been maybe lucky. I've worked in television for most of my career, but we've had some really really great hires, especially in the last few years when we've when we've opened our new bases outside of London. We opened our national HQ in Leeds two years ago, and we had to recruit people who there isn't a hinterland of much television PR experience up there. And it was great because we we got some really fresh candidates with fresh ideas coming in. So no, I mean, look, you, you're absolutely, and Sam's talked about this. You have to have some passion for the sector you're working in. You have to, if you want to work in television, you need to have, be passionate about television and you need to watch it and you need to be enthusiastic about it, but you definitely don't need to have worked there previously. There's, I think that's the important thing. And I think, you know, as much as, industry qualifications are great i think the key principles of being a communicator are, are what what i look for you know news judgment people handling skills strategic thought creativity personal resilience they're the sort of things that i try to draw out and interview and, and look for when i'm hiring so yeah but you know you can come from any sector and, and be great and i think some whether it's government local government different industries for sure we we, we welcome anybody
3: we're not in a career i think that is traditionally qualification led you know we're not accountants we haven't had to pass certain things to prove our worth i th- think and I hope it doesn't sound pretentious it's a soft skill being good at comms and PR and it's something you kind of have or perhaps don't have it suits a particular personality type that for me is very very difficult to teach someone whereas you can always learn about an industry so the soft skills of being a good PR are massively transferable I would find it difficult to go into some areas that I don't have a passion for but if you flip it around the idea of, would I bring someone into television just because they love telly but might be terrible at PR? You can't. That's a much more difficult problem to solve than someone who's a great communicator but just isn't quite up to speed with your industry yet.
2: As the internal communications geek who has done an IC role at a media company, I learned very quickly that big budgets and shiny talent doesn't necessarily equal engaged employees. How have you focused the minds of your teams in terms of strategy when it comes to internal communications, especially when you have such a diverse workforce with so many competing priorities?
1: Yeah, look, it's it's a massive challenge and it definitely isn't about big budgets. I'd agree with that wholeheartedly. I think, you know, last year we, we... Communicated a new strategy at Channel Four, which we had, which we called Future Four, which is a new five-year strategy for the business, and, and so we undertook a big exercise to do that. And internal comms was at the heart of it. And I think the first thing is you have to understand what all of your employee base, all of the staff are thinking. So firstly, making sure that we'd have regular pulse surveys of everybody so we understand what the level of knowledge of strategy was. And and I think the biggest barrier that we came up with was that most people didn't have a good enough understanding of what the business strategy was and how it related to them. So when we launched it in November, we put a massive emphasis on engaging different levels of the organization. And so that was right through. So if you're at the sort of executive and leadership level, we put on specific sessions for them so they could help talk to their teams about strategy in their areas and communicate it but equally we also put on a lot of emphasis on different groups so we worked with our different employee networks we've got networks for lgbtq for pride we've got networks for black and ethnic diverse staff and um, the collective we've got for women which looks after uh, women's rights and issues at the at the organization so we worked with all of those different groups to make sure that they were also feeding into the process and that we were also communicating with them and finding ways to make, help them feed into the strategy process as well. And I think it, it for us, you know, that sort of level of engagement at different levels was as important as doing an all staff and sending out a booklet. And, and, and I think it, in an incredibly challenging period, particularly, I think the extra effort that we went to to make sure that we were doing as much personalized contact with people because at this point we were we were in the midst of the pandemic we we're in lockdown we weren't able to bring people together physically it was really important and over the last year i think one of the things that's been most important as for internal communications is how can we tackle the barrier that being a sort of disparate well having employees and staff kind of distributed right around the country and not able to be brought together physically, how can you kind of continue to have the sort of collaboration and spirit and togetherness that you normally would have at an organisation like Channel 4? So we've we've spent a lot of time doing big virtual events, creating virtual tea points to, to have those conversations that, that you might miss around the water cooler, to think about mail-outs, to connect with staff. And I think, you know, though it's been really challenging, I think the last year has been... A real learning curve about how you can be creative with internal comms to keep people connected, and especially to keep them connected to your to your organisational strategy.
2: An office move is one of those things that will bring out sides of people you never really thought existed. What internal communications lessons did you take from Channel 4's move to Leeds?
1: I think you know I learned a lot from from the move to Leeds and to, to Bristol and Glasgow. I think, you know, the biggest lesson is where change is concerned. People just want transparency and they want honesty. They want to know as quickly as possible how change is going to impact them. And they want to be communicated to personally and not in group settings. And so, you know, along the way, we learned a lot About that. It was the biggest organizational change we'd undertaken in the 40 year history of the organization. But at the end of it, it is a really, really massively positive change for Channel 4. I think moving people outside of London is really important. It's energized the business. We've got a fantastic new HQ in Leeds. Um, which I love spending time in. And it's enabled us to bring lots of new talent into the business from places where perhaps having access to being able to work for a broadcaster wasn't there before. And, you know, like I said, from the comms team perspective, we've had some great new hires who have brought new energy into it. And we've got lots and lots of young people working in teams like Four Studios, our new digital studio up there. The average age of that, I think, is about 25, and there's just loads of young people working in social media production who perhaps wouldn't have got to work for a, an organisation like Channel 4 in an area like Leeds or, or Yorkshire before. So I, I think, you know, yes, we learned some lessons from it, but overall, it's just been the most phenomenally positive change. And One, one of the things that I'm perhaps most proud of, having been at Channel 4 for the last few years, as a Nor- and I speak as a Northerner as well, who has himself moved out of London and moved to the north in the last year so it is I think the more businesses the better who who exploit the sort of talent base outside of London particularly I think that's a good thing
0: and we talk a lot about when things go well and you mentioned lessons there have there been any lessons where things haven't gone so well in your careers each of you that you feel like you've learned from
3: loads if you if you've worked for any period of time in comms and you claim that things haven't gone right or haven't always had a problem then you're lying because there is so much responsibility on us as individuals to balance difficult situations you know you sometimes have all the facts sometimes you're caught on the hop sometimes you know something's about to go to print we're always making judgment calls and you will not always get them right i think the things what have i learned from them probably i've learned i've learned my limits and i don't mean that in an overly worthy way but you kind of realize where you want to tap out you know and um, And as the older I get, I'm probably getting better at asking for help. Certainly when you're early in your career, it can be seen as a sign of weakness not to know an answer. Well, that's the way I used to perceive it. I think I've got better at that, but better at prioritising. You know, work is important, but it's not the most important thing. I think the thing I've learnt most is that if you do make a mistake, take some time to understand what happened, because otherwise it will be a nagging doubt always. Certainly if it's a big thing, you know, you need to exercise that demon, Lance the boy or whatever, cliche. But if you don't do it, it's, it's potentially just to say you won't learn from it, but it's, it's a part of your evolution as a professional that you need to um, to learn from, from what happened, I think.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think so much of comms is not a sort of right or wrong exercise. There is no manual. We're not accountants. We don't there, – there are, there are there are decisions for which – there are no perfect outcomes. And I think one of the jobs of communicators, especially senior communicators, is to to be honest about the set of outcomes and, and where there are a range of outcomes to be relatively plain about those. So, I, you know, I think I've learned to speak quite plainly. And I think those that I work with appreciate that honesty and transparency. And if things don't work out as you wanted them to, like Sam says, I think be honest about it. Own it. And it's never too late to change tack. I think a bit like Sam saying, asking for help. I think one of the things that I've learned most through my career is things change. Other factors around you change and don't be stubborn. Don't necessarily just stick to your guns and plow that furrow if things aren't working. You know, it's never too late to change tack. And and I would really say, you know, the, the, we, I've, I've had some horrible clangers in my time and you just have to, pick yourself up and try something different try again be honest though and I think where you've got a team always have everybody's back and as long as everybody works together it's collaborative and you've got everybody's back in that you'll be fine
0: that's some really good points there and both your careers I mean they just seem so fast-paced how do you manage that how do you kind of deal with that because it's just a lot of pace to change with both your kind of careers
3: so yeah there is a lot of pace certainly when I started my career I felt I was unbelievably busy but James and I were working in TV PR. So unbelievably busy means working on amazing shows, engaging with showbiz journalists. If I think back to launching Strictly, that was kind of 24-7, it felt, because it was not meant to be the show it was going to be, or no one thought it would be. So it was kind of two of us juggling 10 celebs, 10 dancers, all the presenters, everything else. But it was a real buzz. And I was, what, 20-something then. So it fitted my lifestyle. It was part of you know, I really enjoyed the whole circus around it. So I think pace in that environment, it's a cliche if it's PR, not ER. You know, I wasn't rushing from one burning house to another. So thats that was how I handled it. I kind of went all in, but it suited my lifestyle at that point. As I get older, pace kind of, you, you take on more. So you have to be able to delegate that pace you know, there's nothing worse than being a a leader who essentially is the funnel to all things because then pace becomes stress. And we all know those leaders for whom you want to help, you want to lean in, but it feels like they're, because they're so busy, they haven't had the time. But if you don't delegate, the opportunity is only going to get harder and harder. So I think the pace of my life and my work has probably possibly slowed down. Stress has probably gone up, but it's it's an ever-evolving thing So I think, yeah, you need to to be aware of that evolution as well.
1: Yeah, and I think delegating is really important. That's something that comes with time. I think it's it's hard and you you can't help, as Sam says, maybe earlier in your careers, especially when you're new to leadership roles, you you try and do everything. And I, I, I found quite early on I was drowning just because you were trying to do everything you're trying to still do what you were doing before which is do everything hands-on and also try and take strategic decisions there isn't enough time in the day I couldn't even keep pace with the level of emails so you have to you have to rely on others to delegate work to you. you have to have a great team around you you also have to balance make sure when you can switch off it's really important to leave your phone lock it away sometimes go on holiday switch it off go for a swim, go and run. I mean, I, I go and run. I, I run a lot. And you can have some great creative ideas when you're out for a run, but it was also, you're not attached to your phone. You're not speaking to anybody. You can't, you can't talk to them. And, you know, yes, we can work a lot of unpredictable hours in our, in our lives. And most PRs and communicators do that, but it's also really important to take the time back. And, you know, I'm lucky at channel four that we've got a very progressive attitude to, that and a CEO, Alex, who who really supports people to take time back. And, and you know, we just, we, we work the hours that we need to and um, and we take them back when we can. Um, and it's also important, as I said earlier, to have a support network around you to make sure you can, if you're in high pressure scenarios, you know, Sam and I have got a WhatsApp thread that stretches back years and you've got to sound off sometimes and, you know, do that with people that you can trust. So it's important to have that outside of your Your work life as well.
2: Yeah, I agree. Sam's had a few texts from me over the years. (laughs) In terms of content and talking about reality TV shows, have they had their day or do they need a new PR narrative? What do you think?
3: I don't think they've had their day, but I think if you look at reality shows and what you think of is just Big Brother-esque or X Factor, then you probably need to sharpen up on what you think reality shows are because... They're just one of them. But, you know, so much on telly is reality, whether it be MasterChef as kind of a more middle class, perhaps less snobbily looked upon than your Love Islands. I think what has changed is that mass reality has found it a bit more difficult. So there's big Saturday nights that try to be everything to 13 million viewers. And of course there are exceptions, but you know, when I was ITV, I launched launched one the first series of love island which was like i think it's about 2005 it's a terrible celebrity version but that was on itv1 and it just didn't fit itv1 it was the limelight was too bright the audience was too mass so i think the fact that it's moved to itv2 kind of has helped relight it a little bit but that's for me maybe that's what it is with reality shows we need to not think of them as all being something i love the fact that back in the day big brother dictated my friday nights and if you missed the eviction your friends will all be chatting about it. But I think perhaps perhaps it's the evolution of live TV as much as reality TV, but, you know, things change. I don't think they've had their day. They just, we just need to reconsider what they are. No, I definitely
1: don't think they've had their day. I think, And also, you've got to remember there's still endless media and press appetite for reality shows. And, and, and as Sam says, the, br- the definition, what's a reality show? Yes, you know, the big brothers of this world have come and gone, but I'm a celebrity still pulls in millions so does Bake Off and to some Bake Off is seen as a reality show as well and you know there will still be a lot of time for those big behemoths and and there'll be new ones that come in their wake as well so I definitely think you know and that, like I say, there is endless appetite for them it still drives showbiz columns and you know an endless clickbait so yeah I think, more, if not less, appetite for them in the world of digital use.
0: And moving on, we were talking before actually about HR policies, very excitingly. And um, James Channel 4 was one of the first companies in the UK to introduce a baby loss leave um, policy. How did that all come about?
1: Yeah, you know, It came about essentially, I mean, as as an organisation, we, we have a remit to try and challenge societal norms. And so I think we're always looking for things that we can do, not just in our programming, but in what we as an organisation that can, can speak to that as well. And, and that came about as a result of the work of our four women employee network, thinking about what we could do. And, and they, you might have seen they'd already come up with a, an industry-leading menopause policy, which we came up with and made available for others. And, and I think with the pregnancy loss policy, that was the same thing. And I think you know it is something that we, we, we wanted to do for our employees, but also to share to others um, um, and you know alex Mayon, our ceo she's she's really keen for us to be a progressive employer and to try and lead the charge in in making um a stand on perhaps issues that might might not get that attention and as a brand that has a cut through particularly with young people and, and with other organizations it is it is an area we can lead on and i think you know it's great for us to be able to do these things which can have an impact both for our staff but also right around the industry and, and, and I think, you know, like I say, with, men- with the menopause policy, with the pregnancy loss policy, we're trying to do things differently with things like a fifty fifty working policy as well. You know, they're all examples of where we can be trying to think about how we can help employees, not just at Channel 4, but right across the industry.
2: And one of the things that we've seen which has dominated, I guess, the news agenda over the last couple of years is how viewers feel more empowered to report things to the regulator and then Ofcom complaints becoming this sort of massive story. How is it being on the other side when you've got to then spin that PR narrative when you're behind the scenes?
3: I think it's really important that you have a regulator like Ofcom that has that independence that allows people to know know, that, that things are taken seriously. The thing I used to find challenging was when some of those Complaints kind of got co-opted by media for a different type of narrative. So it's absolutely fine and good that people should complain about stuff. They're not always upheld. It's easy to think complaints always have the best interests of everyone involved. But, you know, I'm sure Ofcom will receive complaints about stuff that we would find really offensive about the type of people that, that shouldn't be on telly. I mean, I can't remember who it was that um, criticised Alex Scott for her accent recently. You know, there are all sorts of people complain about stuff, and it will always quite often make its way to a regulator. And sometimes that that would give us a media narrative to defend when we don't. You don't want to downplay the importance of, of Ofcom, but you also don't want to prejudice their finding. And the de- the timeline for press demanding your response. To actually having a well thought out debate with someone like Golfcom isn't always the same. So that used to be annoying when they would get numbers, and it would always be numbers that would kind of drive the demand for a response. And you don't want to, it's like that when you have a legal situation, you can't always comment ahead of adjudication. So but also it's important to remember that's not the only way people complain. At the BBC, people would complain to the customer, um, I can't remember, James, what was it called, the, uh, the complaints duty log? log. The, the duty log that was the, published. The BBC duty
1: log is, is often public, It's a thing of legend that it's got. And it, but I think you've got to remember that that is what comes in the territory of being a public service broadcaster. And if you're at the BBC or you're at Channel 4 or even ITV, that is because people feel ownership of those organisations and they feel passionate about it. And without that connection with the viewer, you would lose something. And those both of those organisations, that connection, whether it's because you pay the license fee or because Channel 4 is publicly owned, that is really important and that people care and they complain when things don't, when they don't like something. But that's fine because that that is part of the compact that we have here and, and that's important. And if you're Channel 4 and you've got to take risks, you're going to do some things that annoy some people some of the time. And, you know, we often say like, if you're not annoying people and you're not perhaps getting complaints and you're not in the pages of the Daily Mail, maybe, maybe we're not doing that job enough. And it can feel sometimes endless and it can feel cyclical sometimes as sam says because the complaints drive more complaints and people that haven't even watched the program that people are complaining about are complaining about the complaints but that sort of is ever thus and that is part of what is great about british television it is great and it is always worth remembering that it is regulated and the sounds like ofcom is a great regulator they're independent and we should be thankful that we have regulated television in the uk because the press is not properly regulated here it's self-regulated and Television of the states isn't regulated, though we do. we have a great plural media network in the UK. We should be particularly proud of of having regulated broadcasters because it's why we've got the envy of the world it's why we've got crown jewels it's why netflix and everybody else are investing with us because we've got a sort of we've got an ecosystem that is regulated and produces great high quality distinctive content
0: we're converted i'm i'm down for it you get my vote um <laughs> i love audience feedback because i remember in 2012 bbc so i used to work in sport contacting English institute of sport and we're like look we've got all this audience feedback they want to know can you give us some advice on what speed to set their treadmills at because they want to run as fast as usain bolt and i was like I mean, 180 I mean, or <laughs> <laughs> all these things like, okay, what about the rowing machine? We we're like, it's. I mean, it's because it's the Olympics, look, guys, you, you can't do it at the gym. They're like, could you put that in a way that doesn't sound like you're annoyed with the public? And we we're like, okay. So it was just really funny. Like ask. Ask anything and then you'd get like some crazy questions, but funny. And then looking, I mean, I'm sure we'll have people listening that will want to move into television PR. Do you have any tips or advice for people who are really like determined to kind of make that part of their career path?
3: I've got a quite a broad take on this, which is that most companies don't want to have to advertise all their vacancies. It's quite an expensive thing, and to, whether that be a broadcaster or a small indie or I know, your local chip shop. And nowadays, with all social media and with the credits at the end of a show, find, if you love something, you can find out who the person might be, the contact might be, drop them a heavy follow on LinkedIn, you know, or engage with their tweets. It's a much, much more democratic process, I would argue. I remember when I graduated, to apply for a job that was in The Guardian, I think, I had to write a letter and you post that off and you've no idea if it even gets there, let alone if they've ignored it. Whereas now we are in a much more visible world and you've also got so many more tools to show your passions and your interests. So don't sit back. I think you've got to lean in. You've got to. And don't just think of it as a an HR process constantly internally people are asking if someone knows someone and it shouldn't be nepotistic that's absolutely a thing you know I don't want people getting jobs because they're someone's brother or uncle but I love the idea that someone might see some really creative ways of engaging with a company and and that might be enough just to get that cup of coffee and always always accept a cup of coffee if someone offers it because that's often the most serendipitous way of of starting things off yeah I think that's. I I, I
1: absolutely agree with that and I think I'm Completely opposed to nepotism i'm glad that most organizations have now outlawed those sorts of connected work experience and so on but i think it is about if you if you want to work in television there are, there are so many great opportunities at the moment and don't restrict yourself to just looking for the main broadcasters that you might think of there are tv and video content is a growing medium in the uk there are all of the public service broadcasters there's the streamers who are on big hiring sprees often there are loads of specific agencies that work for television. There are also there's YouTube. There are there are production companies. There are hundreds of production companies around the UK. Lots of those have their enhanced PR teams as well. But I think, as Sam says, it also it's about being proactive. And you know, I always wanted to work in television, but I didn't. I couldn't think of the way in. So I, I, you know, in our day, God, we're old. We we had to look in the, the Guardian media section on a on a Monday. I think it was, wasn't it? That they printed the media jobs section. And, and when I wanted to come down to London, I just tried to find a job in a peripheral industry. So I applied to, to work in a press cuttings agency and worked the night shift for a year doing the press cuttings. And eventually, that gave me some bedrock of experience of working in some peripheral media organisation, or I could claim it was to to be able to get a to be able to apply for a, a role at the BBC. And luckily get in and and I was lucky. But yeah, just just be proactive. Take those coffees as some said. Be enthusiastic. Be passionate about the medium. Be passionate about television. Read all of the media coverage. Try and understand who's covering what and what interests people. It is endless and there's loads out there, but it it's just it's it's such a great sector to work in if you've got that hunger, and you if you've got that hunger, you will get there.
3: Uh, the only thing I would build on that is it can seem like a really difficult industry to get in, but if you look at the full breadth of what media is and what roles are within those companies. So my first job, I graduated, didn't get a job. I remember my mum shouting at me to go and buy The Guardian on a Monday to find the vacancies, and I had to go to per temps in Birmingham city centre just to get a temping job, and. They luckily had one on the IT help desk at Pebble Mill, which is BBC Birmingham now. And like my IT skills are rubbish, but I kind of backed myself to be able to blag it at least enough to do a temping job there. And once you're in a building, you know whether you're doing the coffee or whether you're doing the press cuttings. like James said, I think you've quite often sometimes people assume that the first role will have some real parameters or be very specifically what their career will be. Whereas media is much broader than that, so take take the blinkers off a bit. Realise that those first jobs probably are going to be less sexy, but um, once you're in, that's the biggest hurdle.
1: Yeah, and there are, and I would add, there are so many great. A lot of the work of the bigger companies now have so many apprenticeships. Again, not just in PR, but in all sorts of areas. For and there, and a lot of those are specifically aimed at intake who might not have had the opportunity to work in television particularly from those around the UK, outside of London, those from disadvantaged backgrounds, those from yeah, diverse backgrounds. Um, and I think, you know, seek those out there. They are there and there's loads of them. And I think really that there are there are much greater routes in the television now than there ever has been. It's more open. It's less um, much less uh, leaning on industry connections than it ever has done. And that's a really good thing.
2: And what are your tips on transferring f- your PR skills and knowledge from one sector to another?
3: I think my biggest tip, if you go to transition, is to have a reason to do it, to make sure it's an authentic reason. So not just because one area might have greater parties than the other, and there are always going to be disparities in terms of pay and all those sort of things, but... Have a reason. Because if you're doing a job you love and the only reason and, and you can't and you want to move sectors, and you haven't got a proper, proper drive behind you, you'll regress it. Because you'll find yourself somewhere that you're not comfortable with. No amounts of canopies will make up for that. So think tactically about why. Make sure it's something you have still a passion with and do your research. Again, repeating the take a coffee line. You know, Harriet, we've met up at Twitter in the offices. You know, on the whole, people are good and that's another thing i'll probably learn in my career i would be scared shitless of asking people for a coffee back in the day But on the whole people are pretty good now and if you've got an opportunity to go in and learn half an hour take it do your research you can't just turn up somewhere saying i've, I've made it in television give me a job in tech you know however senior you are you've got to help you've got to build that bridge
1: and people are open to mentoring now as well i think if you want to if you want to Get a mentor, be proactive and go and seek one out. A lot of people, you might, not everybody has the time, but do do approach people. You'll find that people are more willing to do that than you might think. And, And lots of people across the industry mentor. And that's a great way of getting experience in other sectors if you want to have a move
2: thanks for joining us and everything we've mentioned will be in the show notes we're talking about the questions and issues that matter to you so dm us on social or get in touch with harriet
0: at comsovercoffee.com or myself rebecca at threadandfable.com
2: if you enjoy the podcast please do rate review subscribe so others can find us and have five minutes with us find us on twitter at rebecca seven or at harriet's Season two of Have You Got Five
0: Minutes is brought to you in partnership with Nextdoor, the neighbourhood app that's used by one in seven households in the UK. This past 18 months, we've all needed to connect a little closer with the communities around us and Nextdoor are working to create a kinder place for people to have a neighbourhood that they can rely on. Tap into your neighbourhood at nextdoor.co.uk or download the app from your app store.